This is The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation on Monocle 24, the programme that puts the future of working life firmly in the spotlight. This week we're concluding our series with a live discussion, taking a look at how the events of the past year have reshaped what we thought we knew about the future of work. We'll ask how the coronavirus pandemic has served to underscore inequalities and forced a reappraisal of the social contract. We'll find out more about the ways technology has reshaped our working lives. And we'll ask how the dramatic economic fallout from COVID-19 has prompted multi-stakeholder action on the imperative for lifelong learning. That's all still to come today on The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. Hello and welcome to The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. I'm Tom Edwards here in London, joined from our Zurich studios by Cynthia Hansen, head of the ADECO Group Foundation, and Liana Melchenko, head of thought leadership and Fuse with the Foundation. I'm also joined here in the UK by Julia Hobsbawm, a friend of Monocle and a writer specialising in the future of work, author of best-selling business book, The Simplicity Principle, which has just won the Big Book Award in New York, and the chair of the new Workshift Commission for Think Tank, Demos. Welcome all to the programme. In a moment, we'll hear a word from Sangyun Lee, director of the Employment Policy Department at the International Labour Organisation. Ahead of that, though, I thought we might kick things off by reflecting on what has, by by anyone's reckoning, been an unprecedented year. With this series, we set out to explore some of the different forces that stood to shape the world of work in the future. In the first episode, we set the parameters of our discussion. In recognition of the rapidly shifting career landscape, we put lifelong learning in the frame. We had a conversation around untapped talent, the global workforce, and we set out to explore how exponential developments in the field of tech stood to reshape the roles and experiences of individuals in the workplace. Of course, 2020, I think it's fair to say, has defied all predictions. So as we look to sort of wrap things up, well... How far away are we from where we began? Cynthia, let me come to you. Which of the many challenges and solutions, I guess, that we've seen in response to the events of the year have forced the biggest surprises, have prompted those? How how far have we deviated, if you like, from those predictions that that we set out when we last gathered in this way? I think an interesting thing to explore is the disparity that we saw at the beginning of the year, the people who were already getting left out of the workforce and the people who were having challenges to get in or stay in the workforce. And we saw that actually the pandemic only exacerbated that. And so what we've seen, according to our most recent research, is that actually that divide is getting worse, that women are falling out of the workforce, that people with disabilities and that young people are having a hard time getting into the workforce. So I think one of the things that we've actually seen accelerated, unfortunately, is that divide. However, I think we've also seen that there has been a lot of innovation that has come out of the COVID crisis, that people are looking at how we work differently, how even the definition of work is changing. And so that actually is leading to a lot of good solutions. But I think what we're seeing at the moment is still lack of clarity. It's still early days. We don't know exactly how we're going to be working in the future. People talk about the post-COVID era, but we're absolutely in it still. So I think there's a lot to be looked at in terms of trends, but not a lot of real projections that can be made yet. Yeah, indeed. Julie Hobsbawm, let me bring you in here. It's interesting, I think Cynthia reflects very accurately there on the fact that we're still very much in the midst of this. But that being said, that point also about, you know, lots of innovation that we've seen. Is that what you imagine will be the the key takeaways? 
Yes, it's interesting. I agree completely with Cynthia's analysis in the ADECO research about the acceleration of marginalisation that we've seen through COVID, especially around women in the workplace. There's no doubt that the impact on women working from home and the loss of childcare, for example, caused by lockdowns has been immense. But I'm optimistic that some of the cobwebs that have beset the world of work have in fact been blown away much faster. And one of them is the way that we are really reframing where you need to work and what success looks like in the hours available to you to work. So I think there is a new way of looking at results of workers and the workplace that is to be welcomed. But the disruption to particular demographics has been immense. And of course, the number of jobs that are going to be lost is considerable. The World Economic Forum's data on this, the OECD's data on this, the International Labour Organization's data on this is all pretty gloomy that by the second quarter of 2020, you will have seen something like 495 million jobs lost. So one can't be accused of understating the problem. But I think the trend and the culture of work needed a shake-up, and I think COVID is providing it. Well, yeah, Liana, let me ask you that a similar question, I suppose. Do you agree with Julia there that in, in many respects, what we've seen this pandemic do is drive forwards the pace of change of certain trends that we did maybe talk about at the start of the year, and in fact, throw all of this into a sharp focus, which, despite the difficult circumstances, those millions of lost jobs which Julia's mentioned, you know, that spotlight is at least welcome. Indeed, we see that the economic recovery from the COVID crisis is projected to be very long, uneven, and quite painful. And the consequences of the crisis are most felt in the labor markets. As uh, this is not a secret that employment rates remain well below pre-pandemic levels and the labor market has become more polarized with low-income workers, youth, and women being harder hit. But we also see that the pandemic is changing how we work and the way we work. We see that consumers already rely quite heavily on e-commerce, which is booming, and at the same time to the detriment of many retail jobs. So not everybody can work remotely. And this needs to be remembered as we build the new economy going forward. Well, those straightened economic circumstances have brought fresh urgency to a number of the thematics that we began the season of programmes by talking about way back at the start of the year. One of those was lifelong learning, and I thought we could start with that first of all. Earlier this autumn, here in the UK, the government signalled its commitment to lifelong learning with the Lifetime Skills Guarantee as one example. But questions here and everywhere remain. Who pays? How do the public and private sectors work together? How do individuals and organisations seize on the momentum generated by the pandemic, which our panellists have talked about, to affect positive change? Sang-hyun Lee is the director of the Employment Policy Department at the ILO, a tripartite UN agency that brings together governments, employers and workers in multi-stakeholder engagement with labour standards. Here's what he had to say. There seems to be some emerging consensus, if you like, or strong agreement on what needs to be done. For example, lifelong learning. So everybody's embracing that idea and arguing for that. But the real question is, how are we going to deliver that? That is a very important question. 
And there, we have to think about how actually the different players actually can work together. Otherwise, I mean, it's not possible to actually deliver the life learning. So let's uh, get into some examples. Life learning is a good idea, but it's expensive as well. Everybody expected to go through different trainings and learning at different stages of life. Who's going to pay for that? Is it going to be just the workers or is it just the companies or is it just the government? But the answer is they probably all these three parties need to find a way together to financing together, mobilize resources together and to provide the life learning. So for that, we have to see how actually these three partners get together to see what is the best way of organizing ourselves. For that, we need a very serious discussion. Who can do what? Who is responsible for what? And also how much we can contribute to that. So who will benefit from all of this? Which actually points to the very important question about the social contract. Right now, we're talking about the life learning, but it's not very clear. There is no strong social contract types of the consensus on the how to deliver uh, life learning. So this is also important questions before also how to design the life learning. Depending on who can do what, then we can have a much better idea about how we can structure or organize the policy effort on life learning. For that reason, I mean, some people say, you know, the tripartite is a bit of the old fashioned idea, but we strongly believe this is really times to strengthen the social uh, the dialogue. Sang-Hyun Lee, director of the Employment Policy Department at the ILO there. Xiang identified consensus on a revised social contract as crucial before any really meaningful multi-stakeholder work on lifelong learning can begin. And obviously that social contract covers a range of issues from inclusivity and revised value systems to the need for employers to take an active role in investing in their employees' development and employability indeed. Cynthia, I wonder, has the pandemic prompted that revision to take place? I think it's actually having an effect in a couple of different ways. I think one is it's reevaluating, as Julia had said, how success is measured and really what are the skills that are needed in order to accomplish the kind of delivery that we want across all sectors, across business, across government and civil society as well. And so there's the issue of what skills and competencies are needed. Therefore, how do you train or retrain people into that? And one of the big missing pieces at the moment is a universal skills taxonomy. So there are a number of pieces of work out there to try to create that. Once you have an understanding of what the skills are, what they're called, what we need, then you can get more uh, accurately into then how do you train people who pays for it and one of the pieces in terms of the who pays for it that we're looking at is can you actually make training and retraining an investment a below the line investment rather than an expense that employers carry so if you could fundamentally change what we're training people into for what purpose and then how the cost of that is structured then you can start to create that kind of systemic change. Where do we see best practice, I wonder, in this idea of a multi-stakeholder approach to lifelong learning? Julia Hosmer, I mentioned in the introductory remarks the UK government's commitment. Is that an example of, if not best, at least good practice? And did it go far enough? If there are deficiencies, what do they look like? Well, I'm not sure that the UK government yet is the poster child for this. It has been pointed out, for example, that there was no index linking of furlough payments to retraining or reskilling. So the furlough scheme 
when it's gone through different iterations, but there was no strings attached to it. And that could have been, it's been pointed out, quite a useful moment to link it to the skills agenda. I think that the idea of a taxonomy is critical because we don't really have a set of metrics that says this is what a skill is and this is what a soft skill is. What are we asking for the results to look like? Is it to do with confidence and curiosity and the ability to spot problems before they arise? Is it about being able to simply keep up with the technological iterations that pertain to one cloud platform version and another? What do these skills look like, especially in a world in which it's estimated that the hours worked by machines and people will be equal in the next five years. So for me, the question is all of the things that the ILO have highlighted, but very fundamentally at the heart of it, what is the human skill that is going to sit alongside that of the machine and the technology? And how do we make sure that a human-centred workforce exists and is celebrated. And that, to me, is a question mark over that. What do we desire the workforce to look and feel like for the humans left in it? Very profound human questions and a very urgent question, Liana Melchenko, too, about this question of keeping up. That was how Julia referred to it. In your view, How do stakeholders best position to maintain momentum for these initiatives as we move into the, well, again, exactly as Cynthia said, we're maybe not in a post-pandemic world, but as we look to a post-pandemic world to ensure that we don't revert to the status quo, what do the moves from all the stakeholders need to look like in your view? In my opinion, I just wanted to add to Julia's point on indeed lifelong learning being crucial in the future. But what comes with it is the ability to adapt and combine technical skills and soft skills, social emotional skills, such as creativity, critical thinking, social intelligence, communication, influence, all of the things that humans are most famous for. And that probably answers the question about the role of the stakeholders. In the end, we are designing the future that we want to live in, and it's everyone's responsibility to bring in that emotional and social intelligence to design the best solutions for people going forward. Well, let's move along now. From the outset of the series, we've recognised the role that untapped talent pools stand to play in the workplace of the future. Equipping that talent with the skills and opportunities necessary to prosper is, of course, a key question and one that's only become more important, surely, over the course of this turbulent year. Beyond the practical benefits of a more diverse workforce, it's also become a crucial, well, a moral question, I suppose, a question of, again, that social contract that we've already discussed. This year, Ayo Fagbemi and Nate Agbetu won the Fusion Prize for their remarkable and ambitious programme designed to equip young talent from different backgrounds with the skills needed to break into the creative industries. It's called The Pattern, and here's a little bit of what they had to say about it. It's a chance for young people from communities to actually tell their own stories and create commercially viable, culturally relevant projects off the back of that and what the communities really need. It's kind of buy them for them. It's a chance for them to actually like open the doors to the cultural institutions that they haven't been allowed in for so long. 
think that young people especially haven't been prioritised, especially young people from fringe communities. And it's our chance to not just prioritise them, but give them the chance to take over the spaces that will ultimately decide how the cultural industry and history is written. It's about making sure we tell different stories, but it's also about telling very many like intersectional stories. Because I think often in the creative industry, there's many different types of voices that aren't heard enough. So a lot of this is about giving people the confidence to have their voices heard, not just for their own lives, but also for the kind of institutions that we're working with. But then also a kind of bigger thing in that sense of helping them understand that they are the people that will go on to shape the city in the way in which they want it to be in. Trying to get into any industry has been very hard. It's always about who you know, not what you know. And a game of having experience to get more experience is kind of a double-edged sword. And what we aim to do is like show people that the knowledge they already have on the people around them, the spaces they're in, can be really helpful in terms of creating genuine change in the world around them. And it's been so long that these communities and different spaces haven't really been given the the pedestal to kind of tell their own tales. It always comes through the lens of someone else. And for us, this course is going to help to break that down by encouraging them to understand who the stakeholders in their communities are, understand what the true needs of their communities are and do some production that's creatively focused around all the work that needs to be done and the things that they've learned. A lot of the kind of instances that happen in the news and they bring to light some issues that are kind of already under the belly and and issues that we've already been exploring and that many of the people in our cohort have been exploring as well. I think just to kind of stay on this, I think what this kind of revision of the social contract, as you put it, has, has meant is that more and more people are aware of these issues and more and more people are, are willing and wanting to change that social contract. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I think that's a really good thing that people are starting to wake up to the realities of certain people's situations. But I think first and foremost, the most important thing out of all of this is that we see problems and we look to fix them. And at the end of the day, those are the types of skills that we want the patterners to also have, but we also want ourselves to learn as well. This is a big, big opportunity for us to show that, yeah, learning is a a lifelong thing for ourselves, for the patterners. Our partners as well have learned quite a lot on this journey with us already. The pandemic kind of has changed the whole way that we can interact with just people in general. And so we built the programme so that it can work quite fluidly around them. We want it to be non-linear so they can like do some of the tasks in their own time. We want it to be very empathic and driven by equity and understanding exactly what they want. We're planning the groups to be in cohorts of affinities or they're going to be in affinity groups where they are amongst their peers and people who have similar lived experiences to them just to kind of build and develop the kind of rawness that comes from those experiences into something meaningful, something impactful and something that they all see as insightful. I think the way that we're planning to work with the patterners is quite unique and different because rarely do you go into new job markets or new spaces being told that you already have all the experience you need. I think what we're planning on doing is actually showing young people that the spaces they're in, the people they're around, the things that they've gone through are already enough to actually develop into the job skills market or to develop in the job skills market. And we want to spin the course so that it actually helps them to actualize that and to capitalize on that in the real world. It's not about giving people the skills to work for other people. It's about giving them the skills to be independent and to know their worth as people in the jobs market. Nate Agbetu and Ayo Fagbemi there. I wonder about the needs that this particular programme has been created in response to 
Are they different now than they were pre-pandemic? Or in a sense, and to reflect back on how we began our discussions today, has the pandemic merely served to accelerate trends and important themes that were already there? Um, Cynthia Hansen, I'll put that question to you first of all. So I think actually the needs haven't necessarily changed and what we have is a really good blueprint for how we go back to the end users, the stakeholders, to talk to them about what their needs are and how their needs are changing. So back to this idea of skilling and reskilling, there's been a huge amount of interest and focus put on tech skills. But actually, when you look at the research that we just did, it's actually frontline workers are saying that they don't necessarily just need tech skills, they need soft skills as well. And so you really need to take the time and delve into what the communities and the individuals and those untapped pools of talent need. Back to what Nate was saying about unheard voices, we need to understand what the unheard voices are actually asking for, what they have and what they need to be more successful. So if you look at some of the things that we're doing around, say, the athlete talent or young talent, it's really around making sure we're having a dialogue with those end users about what they need, what they bring to the workforce, and then importantly, how they frame that so that employers can hear it and appreciate it. I think that idea of hearing the unheard voices is really, really interesting. And, and I wonder, Liana Melchenko, let me bring you back in again here. Liana, is the future private sector organisations working with programmes like IO and Nate were talking about just there to ensure that we do hear those unheard voices, we create a more diverse workforce across all industries. Is that potentially a good template of what the future looks like? Yes, I think this is a very important determinant for how to build the future of work going forward. And in the short term, we need more innovative solutions to create new opportunities, especially for people who are displaced and will be displaced by automation, particularly in low-skilled workers. Going back to your previous question, you were asking, have the trends that we've seen before really changed? And one thing that stood out for me this year is that, yes, digitalization and automation are really picking up and the access and having the digital skills for people is really crucial. So bridging the digital divide will be also one of the determinants of the success of how we build the future of work going forward. I think one thing that I find really fascinating here is that these are not simply moral or ethical questions, although there's a critical moral component to them. There is a clear case that diversity, driving improvements in that area, makes really good business sense. Julia Hobsbawm, is this sometimes a narrative that maybe isn't made quite strongly enough, which is that this stacks up both from a moral imperative point of view, but it also literally pays off. Are we sometimes a bit slow to make that latter point? Well, I think we are, but I think the corporate world has had a rude awakening that the business bottom line is empirically improved when diversity is flushed through an organisation, when diverse experiences, ethnicities, generations and class-based backgrounds are brought into what I call the centre of the room. So we absolutely understand that a levelling up and a levelling across is now an empirical improvement for those organisations, as well as, as you pointed out, being a moral one. For me, what's most interesting about this conversation is my work focuses entirely around what I call social health, which is connected behaviour between humans in a digital era. 
And that requires a literacy, not just about the hard skills, but about the soft power that resides within what people feel. There's a whole movement around anthropology, social anthropology, behavioral science, which I welcome. And for me, one of the key ways to measure and manage social health comes from looking after three elements I call the CIA. The C is for community, the C is for culture, the C is for communication, to know who belongs to your organization, who belongs to the purpose-driven company. The I is all about instinct, intuition, as well as intelligence. It's all about respecting what people bring out of their innate sense of what's right. And the A is agency, action, and where necessary, agitation. When we look at diversity, the gains made have come from agitation, they've come from campaigning, and we can't pretend that they happen without pressure. So I apply the CIA of social health when I'm trying to work with organisations to measure whether they really are enacting some of these big, big shifts in culture that need to take place. Now, it's very interesting that we're talking about inclusivity, about diversity, and there are a couple of critical strands we need to return to here. We set the table, if you like, at the start of the year and put sustainability at the heart of the discussion, as well as these other themes. Leona Melchenko, let me come to you. In the understandable rush to look at the technological advances that have been expedited by this pandemic, we shouldn't lose sight of sustainability. This idea of corporate social responsibility, CSR, has given way to the more progressive but urgent ESG, the environmental, social and corporate governance dimensions of an organisation. Sustainability, though, was a crucial narrative at the start of the year, and it's surely as crucial as ever as we move towards the end of 2020. Indeed, we have discussed this topic quite at length early in the year 2020. And now this dramatic year has shown, and we have evidence now to say that the economic recovery will be hugely dependent on our ability to create more sustainable and green jobs in the future. We see some very good optimistic reports about, you know, how many, unfortunately, many jobs will be lost, but even more jobs will be created. So we need to make sure that they are green and sustainable jobs that we are creating. And Cynthia Hansen, we just were saying that diversity makes good business sense. I mean, it's equally true, overwhelmingly the case, that a sustainable approach, equally, it makes moral and good business sense. Absolutely. What we're saying now is that actually sustainable business and the creation of sustainable jobs is no longer a nice to have and is not even any longer a differentiator for companies. It's table sticks. You have to do it if you want to be a going concern. So the idea that you actually integrate green technology and the jobs that go with it, the skills that go with it, is seen as the way of the future, both for how you integrate technology, but also how you manage and develop your workforce. That's fascinating. And I guess at the heart of so many of those agitations, those shifts, the tools and metrics that people use on whichever side of the question, Julia, they're technological, they're digital in character. So let's finally on the programme turn to technology. It underscores and underwrites everything practically that we've talked about. Developments in AI, we began by, by mentioning this, are poised to impact and augment the human workforce. 
perhaps, though, the technology that's had the biggest impact in these past turbulent few months in terms of facilitating work throughout the pandemic has been probably rather more prosaic with travel curtailed, offices closed, millions have shifted into digital workplaces and workspaces. And I thought we should close by talking a little bit about this. Let's hear from Theo Mertz, first of all. He's a correspondent normally based in Moscow, and he explains how, even though he was in lockdown, 1,500 miles away from his usual beat, he was able to keep reporting. I was in Moscow when coronavirus started being talked about, when it was limited to China. And then I went to the UK for a family event in late February, early March 2020, and I was there for a couple of weeks, and just as I was planning to come back to Russia, Russia closed the border, and I wasn't able to get back. And they originally said they were going to close the border for six weeks, which seemed like a terribly long time at the time. But actually, in retrospect, six weeks would have been quite nice, because I ended up being in the UK for five months. I'm a journalist and a foreign correspondent, and what you are being paid to do is be somewhere where other people aren't to let them know what's happening. I thought there's no way that I'm going to be able to do my job. As it dragged on and as I was getting offers of work, I thought, well, what actually, strange as it is, why can't I do it? Because the whole world's in lockdown. So even if I was in Moscow, I'd just be in my flat. So I did start writing on Russia. The main Russia story while I was away was Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader, being poisoned. And I did write about that because I know people in the opposition and I know people who are sort of in the in-protest movement. So obviously I Zoomed them, I called them, I did interviews with opposition activists and probably did exactly the same job I would have done from Moscow. There were moments, especially on the Navalny poisoning, where I thought, wow, do I really need to be in in Russia at all? But I knew this, and as soon as I came back, I was reminded that, of course, you cannot really do the job without being here. I don't just mean in terms of reporting the stories themselves, but in terms of finding the stories. Theo Mertz, finally back in Moscow there. Uh, obviously, Theo is describing a particularly location-specific job, a foreign correspondent in a, in a given city. But I wonder, Cynthia, let me come to you. Do his comments perhaps speak to something broader about the challenges of work in the digital realm, in a digital space, in terms of, you know, that shift away, a, a lack of, of intimacy? The, you know, we keep coming back to this idea of a human story, an on-the-ground connection to the people and places that you're, in his case, writing about but working with, that is a problem which I think has become increasingly apparent, hasn't it, over these past complicated months? I think a lot of that hinges actually on perceptions of the barriers. People thought that you couldn't have your employees working remotely because you wouldn't be able to see are they actually spending their time well or are they on Facebook and surfing the net. But actually, we found very quickly that you can work remotely and that a huge amount of what makes that successful is trusting people to use their time to balance their lives, to find creative workarounds like Theo did. And so I think actually it's been a huge boon to us because it's broken down some of those perceived barriers. There might be other barriers that come up, but overall it's shown people that some of the things that they thought were hindrances actually aren't. And that if you allow people to have agency, as Julia was saying, and to be creative and find their own solutions, then often what you get is even more effective, more impactful, more innovative solutions. 
I do wonder whether these technologies, some of the developments that have been on this fast track over the past six to nine months, do we feel that perhaps those are the big shifts in terms of workplace practice that have the best chance of sticking? Liana Malchenko, let me ask you that question. Does it seem more probable because of, I guess, the familiarity, the urgency, the universality of people's exposure to some of these new technologies mean that they have a better chance? Actually, we've recently done some research on this topic at the ADECO Group Foundation, where when we explored the differences in perceptions between business leaders and workers on the future of work, and one of the things that stood out for me was the difference that, that we saw in relation to remote and flexible working. So clearly, both sides demand higher and more frequent remote working where possible and more flexible work schedules, which is, I think, something that's definitely going to stay there with us in the long run. And that's exciting. But as we mentioned before, the crisis has also clearly shown that being able to get online was really crucial. And that's important to remember as we prepare for the future of work. Absolutely. Julia Hobsbawm, it was interesting, you were talking a little bit before about looking at these things through this prism of broader social health. And in that context, are there specific challenges related to the advances in this technology? If we look at, you know, employee welfare, if we look at maybe trying to replace some of those things that the pandemic has most cruelly stripped away, communication you mentioned, this idea of collaboration, particularly in creative industries, do you have concerns or are you excited about the potential for tech to fill that space in a way that delivers workable solutions, but that also attends to those questions about social health? Well, I'm in the middle of writing and researching a paper called The Nowhere Office because I think it's undeniable that with exceptions such as frontline and retail, the concept of the office is, is going to change beyond all recognition and that the word that will define it most precisely is probably both nowhere, but also hybrid, that we will need to belong and anchor ourselves in a place because no matter how much of a lifesaver the technology is, and that's undeniable, and organisations have been surprised by how easy, relatively, it has been to pivot to a Zoom world. The opposite is also the case, that lots of vital, minuscule, invisible ways in which humans transact information, gossip, advice, opinion, creativity, can't be replicated as adequately in exactly the same way that we know that robots can't be the same at empathy. They can be programmed for empathy, but it doesn't necessarily mean they'll have the same amount. So I want to see a hybrid world where the intimacy and the physicality is enabled and allowed, but where we perhaps take advantage of what we've understood we no longer need, which is a sort of desk-based presenteeism, a commuter-based world, all the things that research shows people do not want to return to. So I think this is an important, profound, and actually incredibly exciting moment. 
a profound moment then, an inflection point, I guess, a real change in the narrative. To that end, perhaps I might just ask each of you on our panel today to maybe just give us some, some closing thoughts, perhaps draw these these strands together for us, given that we're ticking towards the end of our, of our season of, of programmes. Cynthia Hansen, let me ask you, first of all, presumably you'd agree with, with, with Julia that, you know, this is a potentially decisive moment and that it's certainly exciting. There are all these attendant challenges and caveats, but nevertheless, it's a moment we should all be incredibly excited by and engage with. Absolutely. So I think one of the things that's going to stick is that human centricity we've been talking about. And one of the manifestations of that will be a more flexible approach, a more individual approach, something that's very much driven by people's needs and their needs for not just a paycheck, but really for fulfillment and purpose. So I think even though companies have been talking about that for some time, that this is that inflection point. It is a point where that is going to be more woven into the fabric of corporate culture and ways of doing business, we hope, and that that will be one of the lasting changes that comes out of this. Uh, Liana Melchenko in Zurich, let me ask you the same question. Again, it's very interesting, that word purpose. I do recall talking about that right at the beginning and fascinating that we've sort of, we, we end where we began. Do you echo Cynthia's views? Are there other aspects that you would bring into the mix? For me, the two things stand out, which is purpose. It's still there, uh, which is very important for building the future and innovation. I think it's amazing that we have seen so much incredible innovation happen over the past months in this challenging year with many new solutions appearing on the market with very creative, innovative ways that people found to do their jobs in sometimes in, in very difficult situations. But I'm sure that we will see more of such innovative solutions going forward. And we need to remember that they need to be human centered. That's really the key success factor for the future. So human centered and Julia Hobson, perhaps you can wrap things up for us. That's obviously fundamental, the sense of purpose, to be excited, to be engaged with the innovation and the pace at which it's happened, which Liana just flagged up there. Let me ask you for a closing remark. Can we, indeed should we, must we, be optimistic as we look towards 2021 and indeed further ahead? We're an optimistic bunch at, at Monocle. So many challenges, such a turbulent year, such a chaotic year in so many ways. I sense you have some optimistic words, perhaps to close the programme with for us. Oh, well, I hope so. I'm hugely optimistic. I'm a realist. But what I think is that this moment is so drastic that it is propelling people, as Liana says, to be innovative, to seek change, to, to look not at what's been done before, but what can be done in the future. And for me, that hinges on turning away from complexity, bureaucracy, towards a strategy that embraces, as I've written about, simplicity, for the simple reason that we want to feel that what we do matters. And what we do will only matter if we can see that we make a difference, that our lives feel they have purpose. And I do think that purpose and ESG are going to become much more relevant to the corporate debate than CSR did, which never completely got off the ground. I think purpose, ESG, and all of these exciting, challenging innovations we've talked about are going to take shape. And if I have anything to do with it, simplicity and a simplicity strategy will also feature quite heavily. 
Julia Holsbaum, wonderful to hear from you as always. Thanks for joining us from your base here in the UK. Huge thanks to my other guests today, Cynthia Hansen and Liana Melchenko, around the table in our Zurich studio in Dufour Strasse. You can listen back to the whole series of the programme online at monocle.com or indeed wherever you get your podcasts and find out more anytime about the great work of the ADECO Group Foundation. Just head to adecogroupfoundation.org to find out more. That's all for this series of The Way to Work. I'm Tom Edwards in London. Thank you very much for tuning in.